Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I am Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor-in-chief of Modern Retail, as well as the host of this show. And I'm joined this week with Brandon Kaysen, the co-founder and CEO of Canteen Spirits. And I'm really interested to hear about just what it was like launching a new spirits brand in 2020, because uh, I imagine that was an interesting wild ride. But uh, Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know, why don't you just give a quick rundown of what Canteen is and sort of ha- how it all started? Yeah, sure. So um, I have been in the beverage industry uh, in one form or another for the last 10 years. I first was in the vodka business and then uh, transitioned into sparkling water uh, for uh, a handful of years. And uh, really, this was the, the brainchild of those two types of, uh, of, of brands kind of coming together in one. And uh, so much of it was born out of the idea that uh, you started to see this real surge of seltzers uh, hitting the market over the last several years, uh, but none of them were delivering on the full-bodied spirit uh, as the base alcohol. Uh, most were malt-based or were fermented white sugar-based. And as we sort of looked at the category, we recognized early on that the spirits and wine wholesale network, the whole distributor network uh, that, that services spirits and wine, really didn't have a product to go up against the, uh, the, the sort of mainstream seltzer world that was hitting uh, largely distributed by beer, the beer network. And so we saw a gap. We saw an unmet need. We also recognized that consumers wanted to kind of elevate and go premium when it comes to what they're drinking. And so, um, you know, vodka seemed like the very most logical uh, first product that we that we brought forward. So that was kind of the the sort of crux for why Canteen became what it was. Um, I I uh, got with my um, my partner Daniel Barnes, who worked with me very closely on the the rollout uh, and launch of Waterloo Sparkling Water. Both of us were part of that founding team as well, and so we got together and started working on a the first iterations of what became Canteen. The the premise was you know low alcohol base you know, sub or at 5% alcohol, but with a real focus on healthier, better for you attributes. You know, we didn't want to use sugar. We didn't want to use any carbs and we wanted to keep it very low calorie. So uh, that was where we, we kind of, how the brand and product was born. And, um, you know, as far as the pandemic and what happened in 2020, uh, a lot of that happened kind of mid-year for us. We had mm-hmm. we had already kind of kicked the brand off um, in late 2019, mm-hmm. and we're really rolling out our first cases in January. Um, we were already having a great first quarter, and then everything just fell right off the cliff, as you <laughs> would imagine. So we had a nice ramp up, and then a whole bunch of nothing for several months. Um, and it was very confusing, um, but we were we were one of the lucky brands that actually made it onto floors and to store shelves um, before COVID really took off. Mm-hmm. And so, thankfully, we actually, you know, we're, we we kind of looked at as we were sort of like one of these brands that uh, that. We, we, you know, we got across the moat and then into the castle and then the wall came down, you know, right behind us. Um, so it stalled a lot of innovation in, um, in the space. I think a lot of brands that had been set to, sh- to launch were delayed. A lot of uh, retail store shelves uh, resets were delayed. So there were quite a lot of things that happened that we had to kind of navigate. But um, once we got through really the, 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 um, the peak of COVID, which I don't even really know 
what that is defined by anymore, but <laughs> yeah. early, early peak rather, you know, May, May, April, April, May, June uh, of 2020 was kind of where we saw the most, um, you know, the most furloughs, the most stalling. Everybody was kind of chaotic. Um, once we got past that, we really started to see our business take off. And we made up for a lot of that ground that we lost in Q3 and Q4 of this past year and uh, ended up finishing the year in a really, really strong way. I mean, we we're uh, really fortunate to have had as good of a revenue year as we had given all the circumstances. Wow. Wow. There's a lot to dig in there. So <laughs> let's start just at the at the start. And so you said that you you noticed that sort of your how you were going to position the brand was making it not just a malt-based uh, alcoholic seltzer, sort of going this more premium route. Sort of, can you talk a little about sort of what you learned uh, with your past um, your, your your past companies? Because they both, one was pure CPG, sparkling water. The other one was alcohol. Sort of how did that inform the way that you made this new product? Uh, and sort of what was there a, a different launch play than say going, we're just going to do, you know, the usual hard seltzer sort of thing? Yeah. Well, in the past brands that I've worked with and the teams that I've been a part of, you know, one of the big things that we always focused on and I always was a big supporter of was was some having some sort of northern star which was either a, you know, quality, transparency, uh focus on premium, whether that's ingredients or, you know, the way you communicate what's in the product in the can or bottle. At Deep Eddy Vodka, which I was the head of marketing from 2010 until 2017, uh and nurtured that brand all the way through our acquisition to the Heaven Hill Brands company in 2015. Um, you know, we had this focus when we started to launch flavors uh, which became really what we were defined as um, as a company was our flavored products. Our focus was really on real ingredients. Really, we real we were one of the first brands, if not the first brand, in the flavored vodka space to focus on quality and premium juice in the bottle. Right. So we were using at the time, which wasn't such a uh, a negative. We were using real sugar. Right. We thought that at the time, real sugar was OK. Now sugar's the enemy. Um, <laughs> but at the time, you know, real juice was it was an important thing and, and real sugar was an important thing. Um, this was, of course, if you remember at the time when, you know, you had all of these flavors that were coming out, you know, cupcake and and, uh, you know, donut flavored vodkas and all the different, you know, uh, iterations that were really gimmicky and 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 were very popular, but they lacked any real like authenticity. And so Deep Eddie's, our, our goal at Deep Eddie Vodka was to focus on on just that was this realness uh, and a focus on premium. When I transitioned over to Waterloo Sparkling Water, which was in um, early 2017, we had really a similar goal, which was to, to kind of get people away from carbonated soft drinks, diet sodas, uh, and find that gap between, you know, the leader in the sparkling water space, which was LaCroix, um, which didn't have as much full-bodied flavor. There wasn't as much taste there. But they also didn't have as much transparency about the things that went into their products, um, nor the, the vessel in which the product was delivered, the can itself, not being, you know, BPA-free at the time. And so we, we had a, a mission to, to deliver a non-GMO project verified product that had, you know, all of the healthy attributes, but also delivered in a, v, in a BPA-free vessel. Um, but more importantly, it was about full-bodied flavors. So we were really going for, you know, a consumer that wanted to get away from diet sprites or diet sodas, but be able to have an alternative that 
was tasty enough, but also had no sugar. And so it was this better for you kind of mentality that was really the defining um, kind of characteristic of a lot of the products and innovation that we were coming out with. Fast forward to Canteen, you know, what we saw then was, well, let's get ahead of of the consumer's understanding of what it is that they might want down the road. As seltzers are taking off, you know, a lot of people were like, I think basically, you know, the white claws of the world were sort of putting it out there to the world that it was kind of this like pseudo vodka soda, right? Mm -hmm. That it, it kind of delivers on the vodka soda experience, but it's not actually vodka soda. So our goal was, well, why don't we just use a real vodka, a quality product and put it in a can in a vessel that, tastes great, that doesn't have any of that bitter aftertaste, um, and, and most importantly, to do it at a price point that's competitive with the White Claws and the Trulies of the world where, you know, we're able to, on a, on a price per can, be able to compete with those types of products, which, um, which are more expensive to traditional beer, but all of the other spirit-based canned products that were in the market were much higher priced than what we saw as being approachable by everyday consumers. So we needed to deliver a premium product in a can that was portable and ready to go, but at a price point that people could, you know, could, could attain. Can you talk a little about, so uh, the name is uh, Canteen Spirits. And so that's different than saying White Claw hard seltzer. It seems like there's a, there's a slight difference and you're, 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 you're telling potential consumers that you're a different product than that. Was that a, was that a decision on your part to be like, this is a vodka product and not just like a thirst quenching alcoholic seltzer? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you go back and, you know, I can remember very clearly the days when we were, you know, even just putting out our merchandising, like the way our displays are wrapped, the way our product is just, uh, is the, the, the wrap around our product itself, the, the, you know, the six pack uh, case, all of those things actually say vodka soda bigger than our actual brand name. So for us, mm. it was more important in the beginning to communicate this is vodka more so than here's our name because that was the thing that would get people's attention, right? Um, knowing what is in it. And what it also does is it makes consumers who had b- believed they were drinking vodka soda perhaps yeah. start to go, well, wait a minute, I thought – is that vodka? What is this? This is vodka, but what, what was I drinking? Oh, I've been drinking malt, you know, uh, which has a terrible connotation if you were to go out and ask, you know, do a, a, a survey around America. Do you, you know, do you know what's in White Claw or do you know what's in your, your hard seltzer? Um, most of them would not know the answer. And if you were to tell them that it was a malt-based um, alcohol or some sort of refined sugar alcohol, I think that the uh, reaction would be decidedly negative. So it was very important to us to really hammer home that we were a vodka-based product. And as we look to roll out uh, more brands, which we are uh, launching later this quarter, um, it is much of the same mission. We're going to be hammering home that our new products, uh, which are coming out, are going to be made with, one is made with tequila and one is made with gin. And um, they are flying under completely new brand names. They, were, they are part of our company, which our parent company is, is actually known as Spirited Cocktail Corporation. And Canteen is our first product. And we now have uh, the, you know, the, two, the two new siblings, which come out um, very, very soon. Your thing is clear beverages, it seems. Absolutely. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So you're never going to go the whiskey route. 
Well, we might. I, I won't, you know, never say never. You know, there, there's definitely a big surge in RTD beverages that are yep. in, in portable containers. So, you know, I, I, we see in the, in the data that comes in week over week is that consumers are driving towards the portability and the ease of consumption in um, ready-to-drink cocktails. And so I think as consumers are moving uh, in and out of seltzers and in and out of beverage experiences, there is a, a real, uh, real drive towards solving for, you know, the right taste, the right proof, uh, and the right flavor mix uh, in, in spirits. So, you know, whiskey is probably right around the corner for us as well. Can you talk a little about your initial distribution plan? Because you said you you launched uh, end of 2019 and things were ramping up. So how did you approach that? Was that all brick and mortar based? Do you have it all an e-com strategy? And also sort of a corollary, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the canteen is 5% APV, right? Yes. So yes. Does, did that make it easier for distribution in terms of where you could and couldn't sell it or like how you could sell it? Or am I incorrect in that? It actually doesn't. Hopefully the regulations around low proof spirits um, and just the laws of the land will start to, sh to turn in our favor. But as of right now, the proof of a product uh, does not um, allow for more distribution, okay. perhaps like in convenience stores. Uh, we're still held to the same standards as, you know, 80 proof bottles of vodka, for instance. So, um, but there are some states where the proof uh, does allow for that to be the case, but not all states. And, and it's really the majority are still held to that same standard. So it actually is not, um, it actually does not yet work in our favor. There's also no benefit on the tax front too, or still taxed. Um, like a spirit, uh, because we are a spirit, whereas wine-based products and other low-proof products are taxed at a much lower rate. So mm -hmm. there is a bit of a barrier there in terms of product uh, margin and profitability uh, that we have to you know, bear or pass on to the consumer. So at some point, spirit-based products will always be slightly more expensive simply because of the tax associated with state-by-state. State. Um, so that is a bit of a challenge. But with respect to our distribution plan, you know, we rolled out, we were, we were the first brand um, to be part of the newly formed Republic National um, marriage with Young's Market out in the West. So uh, Republic uh, and, and Young's merged in, um, I guess it was late 2019, early 2020. And um, we were the, uh, fortunately, right at the part and when that happened. And so we were the first brand to have a 34 state contract with the newly formed Republic National. Uh, and many of our, um, our uh, supporters and the people that had really championed our business inside of Republic here in Texas moved out to, to run uh, large portions of California. So uh, that became a real strategic uh, benefit to us because we had baked in relationships here in Texas and now um, new relationships that were uh, creating uh, a big strategic value for us out West. So it's been a great partnership uh, working closely with RNDC. And then uh, of course we have a number of other distributors that make up the rest of the 50 state map across the country. Given that you're in the spirits business, like how, how do you go about being an upstart when you're constantly going up against like the big three and just sort of dealing with dealing with sort of being a smaller brand in a bigger pool that you need to sort of get a foothold? It sounds like this partnership really helped things, but I imagine for other companies that are trying to get national distribution, it's a, uh, it's very difficult. Yeah. Well, a couple of things, you know, big, big, 
big companies uh, are usually not as good at innovation as they are at, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions. And so oftentimes, you know, you can get a product like ours off the ground and, and get a lot of consumer acceptance uh, because there is less uh, focus from big, big companies on creating new brands and creating new products for fear of spending a lot of time and energy and resources and dollars towards something that may not work. So um, we've seen that play out. And then also I'd say that as this category has developed, you've seen a lot of um, existing brands that have strong consumer awareness on the bottle side be a little bit slow to create seltzer-based versions of themselves, probably for fear that if it didn't work, it would tarnish the good name of that brand on the bottle front side. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're starting to see a little bit more of, of, of that innovation come to pass. You, know, you have new brands that are hitting um, the, the shelf right now and that are continuing to roll out over the next several months. Um, but really, you know, we were, we were one of the first brands to introduce our product to the distribution network. Why, you know, months and months and months before any of the big guys, so to speak, started, you know, uh, perhaps talking about it. And so we got, you know, we got the, uh, the attention. And then when it started to get attention from national retailers and, and we started getting real meaningful authorizations and uh, all of that started to make uh, a big deal and, and, you know, success begets success. So as you get one retailer, that brings it in, you start to get another retailer and another retailer. And this whole Me Too sort of, I want it also kind of starts to kick in and um, and things start to kind of steamroll and and snowball. And that really worked out in our, in our favor. Um, so as authorization started coming in in late fall and, and even, you know, into last year's spring, you know, we were right there neck and neck with the big guys, you know, authorizations for our brand, you know, we would get three and four and five SKUs authorized right next to some of the biggest names in the business. Um, and that's continuing to happen. We're getting all of our new flavors that are coming out this fall. We launched strawberry. And in the spring here in a couple of months, we're launching our pineapple flavor. All of these are getting authorized in this in the retail space. You know, we're, we're not losing positioning uh, to, to all this new innovation that's coming in. We're actually, you know, growing our position um, and in many cases, accelerating beyond where, um, you know, we're kind of punching above our weight, so to speak. So mm -hmm. it's, it's been fortunate, um, but, you know, we're not getting complacent. We're still leaning into the business and fighting hard every day. So talk to me about, I guess it'd be June or maybe early July, because you mentioned early on that, you know, you were gaining steam, things were going really well, and then COVID hit and it, you know, put a stop to a lot of things. Uh, what, as soon as things started to not go back to normal, but you were able to sort of regrow the business at, incre at incremental steps, what did you, what changed? Did your overall distribution strategy change? Was it just that, you know, retailers started to reopen? How did you sort of approach things and shift things back then? So, well, a couple of things happened. We, um, we hired people when everyone else was laying people off. Um, we'd more than doubled our sales force yeah. in June of last year when, um, and, and, you know, I won't say we took advantage of the situation, but we certainly, uh, found a number of individuals who were very qualified in the industry who were getting let go from great jobs at big companies, whether it was on the distributor side or on the supplier side. And we, um, we had just finished doing our series a raise, which we did in may of 2020, 
we closed a uh, our our we had raised a convertible debt sort of safe round, which was our seed round in fall of 2019, and we had used up funds and were ready to roll out our our Series A raise and did it in the middle of the peak of shutdown. Right, we did it in the middle of the peak of shutdown in May of last year, and um, our investor base, which was very confident in what we were doing you know, committed and we were oversubscribed with our round in 36 hours. Um, so we were well-funded at the moment. We leaned into our business when others leaned out. We, um, and so we doubled our sales force. We hired more, more marketing bodies. And one of the other things that we recognized was that as we came out of the kind of the sort of, sort of peak of shutdowns in that early stage, um, we realized that we needed to make more product. We were using co-packers at the time and we were producing our products outside of our, you know, we didn't have a facility, so we were using other other equipment and we were having a hard time getting confirmed dates to produce our product. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't get a confirmed date. We couldn't get line time that we needed. And so we, um, we recognized in June of last year that we have got, we have got a tiger by the tail. We are, and we cannot rely on other, um, production facilities to keep up with what could be growing demand as we get going. And so we decided then that we needed to open up our own facility. So not only did we lean into staffing and building out the team, we took a a tenth of the PPP money that we could have had access to. Uh, We just felt like fundamentally like it didn't, we were not hurting. And so we did not take PPP, uh, which we felt really great about. We did not furlough any of our employees. We expected them to pick up the phone. You know, we did not ask them to travel. We didn't ask them to go into stores, but we did say, you know what, try something new, right? Never did you call a liquor store and sell your brand over the phone, but we (laughs) did, right? That's exactly what we did. And you know what? The, the stores were like, I don't have shoppers in here. I don't have any reps in here. So uh, making phone calls, which seems completely archaic and, and analog, became a very meaningful way to do business. And we were landing 50 and 100 case displays and drops of product into these stores um, virtually, you know, doing it over the phone. And so, you know, we did more and more of that type of activity. Um, but leaning into the production facility was another big moment in our business where we recognized that we were, in order to keep up with demand, we would have to own our facility through, you know, turnkey all the way through. Um, and so uh, we, we are proud to say that in the next uh, month, we're going to be opening up a 40,000 square foot production facility here in Austin, where we'll be pumping out uh, you know, millions of cases, <laughs> I'll just say, with the capacity to, uh, to grow that plant uh, to keep up with demand over the next several years. And you know, still maintaining relationships with our co-packers uh, for strategic and logistical reasons. Um, but we really leaned into it. And I would say as people came out of the, the peak shutdowns, what we saw happen was this surge of, you know, scooping up not just anything they or, or, or you know, the, the brands that they knew, they were buying everything they could get their hands on. Mm-hmm. And so that was a good opportunity for us to really get a lot of trial because people were picking up Canteen for the first time and putting it in their shopping cart and liking it and coming back. You know, our reorder rate, our rebuy rate in, in on average nationally is over 50%. 
So the people that tried it, you know, one out of two people came back and bought it again. And so that just sort of, uh, that sort of allows for a very healthy relationship with retail. It creates a healthy relationship with your distributors because you're, you're a product that all of a sudden became very relevant. And um, you're not, you know, asking for favors or asking for focus. You become a, a brand that's profitable, that's making everybody money and making consumers happy. And so um, that was what happened. And in Q3, the brand just took off. We were doubling month over month over month and, um, and just seeing a real strong, uh, you know, runway to success, which has, you know, given us more and more confidence as we look to, to next year uh, or this coming summer and spring, uh, which is definitely a peak for this category. So mm-hmm. we are, are, you know, poised. We're putting all the uh, groundwork in place to have a really great, uh, great summer. So talk to me about the marketing plan. So, you know, you mentioned that you, you're, you had salespeople doing cold calls. What were you doing on, on the customer front? Were you doing more outreach for digital platforms like Drizzly or something like that? We How really, sort- yeah, yeah. We, I would have liked to. Um, you know, Drizzly was uh, probably getting uh, inbound more calls than they could possibly <laughs> handle. I think every brand that knew what they were doing was looking at that. Uh, you know, if you had the foresight, uh you were, you were well ahead of the DTC platforms prior to COVID. For those of us that were just getting started, that was kind of a step five, right? DTC was like, okay, we'll get to that when we can get to it. Um, and we did not, uh, we were not positioned to take advantage of, of DTC. And by the time it mattered, it was kind of too late because they were drinking from a fire hose and there was no way they could keep up with all of the needs and demands of the brands. So um, that was not something that we, we were able to, to capitalize on. Um, but speaking of digital, you know, all of our money, all of our digital and marketing funds rather went into social. You know, everyone, as you probably know, was spending an inordinate amount of time on social media platforms, you know, talking about life in the new norm. And so we were a part of that conversation, certainly trying to be cognizant of the, you know, the sensitivity of, of the situation. You know, we weren't forcing our brand into the conversation probably more than uh, we should have been, but we were certainly trying to get awareness out and, and social media was and continues to be the driver of our, of our marketing platform. I think a brand like this is one that is, you know, not all brands have an invitation, I would say to play in social media, um, some more than others. And I'd say that our brand um, certainly plays well in that space. Consumers react and engage with our brand. And, um, and so we will continue to do that. With your social plan, did that include reach out to influencers and people like that? Or is this just more from your own accounts? It's both. Yeah, we, we absolutely engage in, in influencer media um, and that strategy. Um, you know, I think that that whole, inf- the influencer um uh, economy, if you will, has, uh, has, has kind of, it, it's got a pulse to it. It's, it's, it's relevant. And then it sort of seems very saturated. And I think that there's a, a healthy way to play in that space without relying on it exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that, um, sometimes influencer can be a little bit forced and a little bit, um, inorganic. And so we always want to try to maintain a relationship with our influencers that's meaningful and that's thoughtful and that's, um, that's authentic, you know, just to get back to that, that word. I think it's important. So what we did was really leaned in on, um, people who were living off the grid, um, you know, photographers, adventurers, people who, who kind of lived on uh, a unique lifestyle. 
Um, and so we were partnering with a lot of photographers and, you know, different individuals that, you know, lived out of their van or were nomadic in some way uh, in their lifestyle. And, and COVID really, like, I think it really capitalized or it's sort of like, um, it sort of uh, magnified the, the sort of reason why they existed in that format. And so um, we, we got some really great content out of that time period. And we'll look to do more and more of that type of content where we're, we're focused on, you know, people that are living, you know, unequivocal lives uh, and that still like to, you know, have a great adventure and live off the grid, but enjoy a, a great refreshing cocktail in a can, you know, when they're done with their activity. So that was a big part of it. And, um, you know, we got some great content out of it and made some great relationships with some real awesome people. So I wanted to go into sort of your future plans and you hinted a little bit at that, but I wanted to start with how you're thinking about sort of as things quasi recover, more openings happen, cases go down. I feel like for a lot of startup brands, especially in the spirit space, it's about getting people to taste. And so are you, th- are you thinking about events now? Or is that not on the, the books until we know exactly what's going to happen? Sort of how are you thinking about the, these more, you know, in-person marketing events? Well, I can't tell you how excited I am for in-store tastings to come back because where we have done them in a very controlled setting and certainly, you know, keeping in keeping with safety and health uh, regulations, um, we have a tremendous, you know, buy rate with respect to tastings and demos. So we're really excited about that. Looking forward to that. Um, events, you know, it's still just a big placeholder for us. I think that we're, we've got a pin in it and it's just sitting there and, you know, there's dollars uh, ready to go, but those will probably not be uh, released or activated until half two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that most of the music festivals and, um, and events are really, you know, kind of playing it day by day right now. I think as the vaccine starts to roll out and consumer confidence starts to uh, lift, um, there'll be more and more of that, but I still think you're going to see, um, smaller crowds, you know, uh, more space, uh, created for consumers that are going to those events. Um, so we'll just kind of play it by ear and wait and see, but we certainly can't wait not only for the brand's sake, but for our own sake to get out there and, and be a part of events. I can't, you know, we're big fans of, of live music. And, um, so it's a big part of our, our lifestyle. I know, uh, speaking for me and my team. So we're excited about the future when that, when we kind of open things up again. What are you banking on that is in place for 2021? You mentioned new flavors, new SKUs. Uh, are, is there, you know, are there any other big things that you're looking on, looking at is it more yeah. distributors? Well, I'll tell you, just go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. We're, we are launching Cantina, uh, which is tequila soda, and that will be coming out in March. And Cantina is a, you know, obvious, uh, offshoot of Canteen, although they are completely separate brands. Um, you know, Cantina, uh, means bar and it means, uh, you know, a venue where you get together with friends and enjoy a beverage. And so we're excited about Cantina. It's a 5.6 alcohol tequila soda. We'll have three different flavors that will launch. We have a ranch water, which is a, a basically a sort of like a skinny margarita. It's a <laughs> lime, a lime and sparkling water based tequila beverage. Very refreshing. We also have a Paloma coming out, which is grapefruit and salt and then a watermelon margarita. So those three flavors in Cantina will be coming out in March. All 12 ounce cans sold in a four pack 
Um, we're really excited about those SKUs and the distributor and retail excitement has been overwhelming. So we see that as the surge of consumers are moving towards tequila, um, mostly because of the, you know, the perceived low, um, you know, low hangover type of feeling people get when they drink an organically produced vodka or alcohol product. Tequila's is an organically produced uh, of alcohol. And so there's a, a lot of sort of healthy attributes that consumers apply to tequila. And, um, and so we're excited about that. People are really looking forward to that. And also it has uh, a more elevated, slightly more, um, uh, you know, tasty experience. Whereas vodka tends to be, you know, tasteless, colorless, odorless. Mm-hmm. Our canteen products drinks more like a sparkling water. You really don't taste the alcohol uh, really at all in canteen. In cantina, for those that like that more smoky, more rich flavor that tequila offers, you're going to get that in cantina. And it's a slightly higher alcohol content at 5.6, but still, you know, zero sugar, only one gram of carbs and uh, made with real premium ingredients. So we're excited about that. And then our, our next brand that's coming out is Waterloo uh, Botanicals made with gin uh, produced by Waterloo Gin, which is um, which is a uh, partnership that we have with Waterloo. Not the same as Waterloo Sparkling Water, completely different brands, completely different companies. But Waterloo Gin uh, Spritz is the product, and it will be coming out in three flavors as well. Uh, these will be a little bit more, I guess, cultured, a little bit more elevated in that they're uh, meant to be more foodie-based, a little bit more cultural. Uh, they have a slightly more... Um, uh, kind of high-end, more interesting, curious flavor palette. So mixing rosemary, ginger, uh, lime, grapefruit, some more botanical elements that you get in gin. Uh, but we will have three skews as well. There will be blossom, citrus, and uh, ruby. And those will also be coming out in March as well. So uh, four, sold in a four-pack, uh, four 12-ounce cans in a pack. So very exciting times. We've got a lot of SKUs that we're coming out with, and uh, we look forward to you know coming out with more flavors and more innovation on all three brands. And you know maybe we'll have a couple tricks up our sleeve for later in the year. Yeah, it sounds like you got uh, a lot of things in the pipeline. Well, Brandon, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the time, and I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. 